You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer. One thing we can all agree on is that decolonization is a divisive word. I'd argue that it can also be a confusing word, and one whose meaning is very dependent on the context in which it's used. For this episode of the podcast, I spoke to two London librarians who have pulled together a collection of essays exploring what it means to decolonize the library. Their collection covers the practical and the contextual with essays from contributors in Kenya, Canada, the UK, and the US. In our chat, I asked them what they mean by decolonizing the library and how that happens within the context of being a student, an academic, and a researcher to clear up any of the confusion that may come with a topic like this. We also acknowledge how complicated the term decolonization is and the risks involved in using it to do the work of questioning things like library spaces, contracts with academic publishers, and even how archives are classified. I left a link to the book in the notes for this episode for you to check out on your own, but now let's listen to my conversation with Regina Everett of the University of East London and Jess Crilly, who's just retired from the University of the Arts London. So Jess and Regina, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, Thank you. For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about who you are uh, and what your background is? Regina, let's start with you. Okay. Hi. So I'm Regina Everett. I'm the um, well, Assistant Chief Operating Officer, um, Service Excellence, and Director of Library Archives and Learning Services at University of East London. So that's a real mouthful. <laughs> so effectively, I'm the university librarian, but um, sorting, sitting within the Chief Operating Officer's portfolio, I also support them in, in, in their work. So one of the key areas that I look at is the customer experience and how we sort of join up communication across our services. So that's, that's, that's the, the current role. Um, sort of my interest around um, the, the work, you know, leading to the book, for example, is, mm. you know, I'm, I'm quite keen to um, develop more diverse leadership within um, our libraries and academic library um, environments. Like the higher education sector, um, we're not very diverse when it comes to, to leadership. Um, so I'm, I'm quite keen to help to develop other uh, team members to, to, to those leadership roles. So that's my interest generally. Mm, great. And we'll, we'll get on to the book uh, that you guys edited and the, and the whole reason why you're here. Um, but first, Jess, let's hear from you. Tell us a bit about who you are, where you work, what your background is. Okay, thanks. I'm Jess Crilly. Um, I've worked in academic libraries in a variety of different roles, most recently as Associate Director for Content and Discovery at University of the Arts London, where I was responsible for collections, including archives, um, and discovery, which is how people use and find them. I actually retired in September 2020, um, I, but it was really in that role that I became interested in understanding more about decolonization and how it was impacting universities and what it really meant for libraries and archives. So you have edited a, a collection of essays called Narrative Expansions, Interpreting Decolonization in Academic Libraries. Um, do you want to tell us just a little bit about why you decided to do, I think you guys have both touched on it a little bit, 
But tell us explicitly why you decided to pull together a collection of essays around the decolonization of the library. It's certainly a term that we've heard a lot about in the curriculum and in hiring processes within higher education, but in the library specifically, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to do this. Shall I um, kick off? I think yeah. it's really to, to, to bring together some of the work that libraries are engaged in, um, specifically under that banner of decolonization. Um, often they're part of institutional working groups or, or they're working on decolonizing the curriculum with students and academics. Of, often the work has been in response to requests from students. So the book examines the nature of that work, how decolonization is being interpreted, as the, as the title suggests, in, in that setting and what libraries are actually doing. And we wanted to reflect a bit on the term itself because we realize that there are tensions and risks around using the word decolonization. So we had lots of discussions about whether it should be in inverted commas um, or just decolonization. And so we also explore what specifically justifies the use of that term. What's the theoretical background? Um, what are the ways that colonialism impacted knowledge production and how in turn has that shaped the university library? Mm. Regina, you mentioned a little bit about kind of wanting to, to bring in more diversity around the leadership of, of libraries and how we're having these conversations. Is that is that part of why you got involved in this project? Absolutely. I mean, and, and uh, within my team members, um, they have been sort of sharing practice, which is uh, that's one thing I will say about uh, libraries internationally, that we are fantastic about sharing practice. Um, and my team members are, are very keen to, to get out and share their practice with other um, institutions and this work around decolonization actually was led from within my team members, my staff members. So I wanted to um, give them the space and the confidence to be able to explore that work. So they worked, you know, at, with Jess at, when she was at University of the Arts to, to put together this, um, you know, conferences to share the practice. And to me, it all, it does it does interlink because it gives people the space to sort of reflect on our practice, respect, uh, reflect on our spaces, um, and reflect on how we're, you know, so supporting our students or their or their students seeing themselves um, in their education. So to me, it's all interlinked. So from my perspective, I looked at it from the leadership uh, perspective of, you know, creating environments where I have team members who felt confident to go out and explore and challenge the practice within the institution. And to me, I think that all sort of rolls up to, you know, sort of developing leadership mm. um, moving forward. It is quite interesting. And I, I agree with you. I think a lot of this stuff is interconnected. Somebody listening to this right now might be like, oh, well, this is about just library science and library information. This doesn't really have much to do with me, but actually it is all quite interconnected across, across the university. Can you tell us a little bit about perhaps what you learned in, in, in the process of editing this collection of essays and what decolonization of libraries, what role that plays within the decolonization in general across institutions? Well, we, we wanted to look at it from multiple perspectives in a joined up way, mm. as you just said, so that there are case studies in UK university libraries, but also we look at the student perspective, how important it is to them and their belonging within the institution. We looked at some academics' perspectives and work in related areas like um, academic support and research methodologies. The role of what we call LIS, Library and Information Science Education, what library school students are, are taught. Um, 
And we also looked at different contexts of decolonization. So that's why the book is international in scope. So as well as looking at the UK Academy, the, the metropole, if you like, in terms of decolonization, it also looks at case studies from settler nations, mm. um, Canada, the US, and post-colonial or probably neo-colonial context of libraries in Nairobi, um, Kenya. So speaking personally, I've learned an enormous amount from our authors uh, who explain the context and background uh, and the detail of the work uh, that they were doing. And I think that, that breadth of looking at the subject um, is, is hopefully a, a strength of the book. Mm. Absolutely, and I, and, and I think for our, um you know, developing professionals uh, within within our practice is good for them to again to 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 get a taste of how this um, topic is being approached. And I think you know, in years to come, it will be very interesting um, for those professionals as they develop to see how how this work develops, how sustainable it is. You know, because one of the concerns I had at the start of this project, well, first of all, I, I, I struggle with the term decolonization because having grown up in America, you know, it's, we just look at sort of racism and race relations generally. We just kind of, um, you know, call it what it is, as it, you know, in, you know, from my perspective. But uh, so that's that's where the challenge was for me. But I think this is a real opportunity to look at it from different perspectives. So what I learned um, mm -hmm. is to, to, to understand what decolonization means within the context of all of these other institutions and the Canadian uh, example was a real eye opener. And I really would like to learn more about sort of, you know, sort of indigenous response um, in this, in this space. Hmm. Talking about the term decolonization and justice is something that you, you mentioned earlier about kind of the tension around mm -hmm. using the term decolonization. Can we just unpack that a little bit? Um, and let's talk a little bit about what, what that tension is and, and how that perhaps plays out in the context of, of libraries. Okay, well, I think going into it, we were very aware that there are risks in terms of using the term decolonization. And one of the risks is just simply overclaiming. Mm. I mean, diversifying your collections is, is, isn't decolonizing. Um, so there's a risk of, of, of overclaiming and not being specific about what you're doing. Um, there's a risk of contributing to the overuse of the word so that it loses any sense of its original radical intentions and just becomes a buzzword and something mm. that everybody's doing. Um, and there's also the risk that what you do gets kind of co-opted in, into tokenistic responses. Uh, but isn't it doesn't actually sort of fundamentally change anything so i think you know we were very aware of of those risks um and that's why we wanted to explore the theoretical background a bit in order to say this is why we're talking this is the impact of decolonization of colonization rather on knowledge production this is how it's impacted libraries this is what we're trying to do about that so we wanted to kind of trace that line through so that there was a proper underpinning of being able to use that word. And, and, and Sarah, this is where you hear, um, the, the, I think, the strengths of, of Jess and myself working together, because, again, I think she works very well with this sort of theoretical um, sort of context, which I think is very, very important. And then for me, um, and maybe, you know, for me, it's uh, just a, a down to the, the, the 
practicalities is who's telling this story. You know, we are, you know, sort of enablers to access to information. Are we being clear about where the narrative is coming from? Who's telling the story? Helping our users to triangulate information. Okay, so our collections speak from one specific perspective, but to get another perspective, we may signpost people to other perspectives. It's about being honest about the voices within our collections, the voices that are, are silent within our collections and signposting and encouraging our users to continue to ask those questions about why is this so? Who's says that this is the, you know, that this is the correct, you know, approach. Where does this knowledge come from? Um, I think that's, that's our role as librarians. And I really look forward, you know, again, in years to come to see how this practice develops. And as I said, it is interlinked. It's all well and good to say you've got diverse collections, a great reading list, but what does your leadership look like? What do your spaces look like? How do your students feel when they're using your collections? Mm. So that's how it's, 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 it's all interlinked um, mm. from our perspective. Mm, that's a really good point. Just, I mean, because libraries are often behemoths of, of structures on university campus, at least pre-pandemic days, they're the real beating heart of a campus. And if those spaces are inaccessible by certain sectors of, of society or the campus community, then what does that say about accessibility to that knowledge? That's a really good point. Um, I'm interested to know, you guys were pulling together this collection at quite an interesting time, not just the global pandemic, but also uh, after the murder of George Floyd, the end of Donald Trump's administration. There are lots of hot issue discussions going on during the time that you were pulling together this collection. How did that influence the way you were looking at these essays? I think it had an enormous influence. I think it was, it's funny to look back on it now because it, it was such a tumultuous year uh, for all of us, kind of per, per professionally, privately. It was really a tumultuous year. It was a year with all, the, all of those things going on that you've just mentioned, but also the, you know, universities closed, Libraries didn't close. It's, that, it's not fair to say universities closed either. Their physical campuses closed, mm. but not not the sort of digital online presence and support. So it was a really kind of momentous year. And I think the murder of George Floyd really escalated anti-racism and institutional responses and kind of public commitments to mm. anti-racism. And, and that often included what universities or other institutions were going to do about their libraries and their collections. Um, and that happened right across the kind of museums, libraries, cultural sector. And sometimes there was pushback against those statements because they obviously didn't tie up with what was actually what it actually was like to work or study mm. in those environments. But, but it was also the year that the British Museums was published about um, restitution of the Benin bronzes. It was the year that the statue of Edward Coston was toppled. Um, it was the year that institutions like the National Trust produced a report about the impact of um, slavery and mm -hmm. colonialism on their collections. So altogether, it just kind of added up, I think, to what felt like a kind of a, a, a struggle over the narrative of history. Um, and I think that the decolonizing the, the movement was a part of that sometimes quite public and uh, contentious struggle for, for history and as Regina says whose knowledge whose knowledge counts whose narrative counts whose voice counts so 
Yeah, and I think it's kind of continuing in some ways because since we started um, editing the book, there's been quite a pushback on critical race theory, which several of our authors have used in their chapters. So I think in a way it's kind of not over. Some of it is over, but some of some of the kind of events are just kind of mutating into <laughs> other kinds of events. <laughs> I think the, the book would have happened because we we knew we know that even pre-pandemic there have been a lot of discussions around, you know, how do we, you know, sort of decipher this? What does this mean within our within our um sort of collections and within our practice. But I mean, the pandemic where you had people at home <laughs> and people, I think there, it was almost like a pressure cooker. You know, people were at home, they were frustrated. They had more time to focus on sort of these issues. So again, you know, with the the, the protests, I mean, there was just time for people to really sit and, and, and reflect. And that's why I, you know, I, I think it's so important that this work has, I'm excited that this work was um, produced during that time because it, it was such um, a tumultuous time. And I, I would like us again, you know, years hence to go back and reflect on, you know, the language we use, you know, it, it, it you know, whether or not this the same passion um, still exists, whether again, and I keep talking about how sustainable it is, because that has, oh, that was one of my concerns about this, you know, sort of the decolonization agenda, that it did feel like a fad. We'll see. Mm. We'll see. But mm. are we going to actually put our money where our mouth is mm. so we can go back to this book and we can reflect on it and maybe even go back to the the um, authors in the book and see what's what's shifted within their institutions I think it would be very exciting to see that mm. I guess the other the other side of that is also um how the conversation about decolonization gets caught up in in the culture wars um, yeah. of kind of broader society and I'm wondering if you guys think there's a risk of that happening or if that's a conversation that kind of exists outside of the walls of, of academia and is something that kind of perhaps politicians and, and media talking heads worry themselves over when in actuality librarians and academics know exactly what we mean when we're talking about kind of questioning the, the fount of knowledge and questioning why we present information in a certain way and making spaces as accessible as possible. Is there a risk that these conversations will get caught up in all of that? Uh, and will that perhaps affect the sustainability of something like this? I think they already are getting caught up in it. Um, I think many national institutions, I mean, I mentioned the, the National Trust, but many institutions who are not used to being on the front page of newspapers are finding themselves in that position. And I think many, um, I, I, I've seen libraries in that position. Um, so I, I think we are already getting caught up in what you might call culture wars. Mm. I don't know what Regina thinks. Yeah, I mean, it. it, it... <laughs> Just the concept of culture wars, I think, is is an interesting one. Basically, you know, people are just challenging, you know, existing knowledge and thinking, and asking different questions, um, and just and, and requesting that things be looked at through a different prism, different perspectives. And it's up it's up to um, individuals once they've triangulated that information what they do with that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting that because, you know, um, you know, people are being challenged in this way, you know, knowledge is being challenged, perspectives are being challenged, that is, it's almost like people think it's a bad thing, but it's, that's how, isn't that how civilizations evolve? 
that we challenge, we question, we learn, we get, you know, we research. Um, so it, I think it should be more of a, an, a positive and exciting thing. It's, it should be what we do, certainly within universities. And I mean, this, this comes up quite a lot, you know, again, with my sort of remit, you know, thinking about customer experience within, within my, my institution. Um, you know, is it always about, you know, the students being satisfied because they're happy and they, you know, walked away, um, you know, happy with the outcome of the class or should you feel a bit uncomfortable in universities that people are challenging your thinking and you go away and think, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I'm going to go away and think about it. You know, I, I, I think this is how it, it must be, you know, mm. that we should be asking these questions. We should be challenging and everything that's written in this book, you know, again, future professionals should look back at this and say, actually, you know, that, that didn't stick, that, that wasn't relevant. We have moved on. This is mm. the approach we're taking now. That's, mm. that's at least my hope. Mm. I think also there are some mischaracterizations of, um, for example, um, decolonizing reading lists or building more diverse collections. So, so for example, I think the word Eurocentric, I think we're trying to move away from Eurocentricity, but not move away from the European. Um, knowledge. Um, so I think sometimes things are mischaracterized. Um, I think what libraries are aiming at is a, is a plurality of knowledges, not to dismiss one knowledge or the, you know, the existing foundations of knowledge that we have, but just to fill gaps in that story and introduce other forms of knowledge. So I think sometimes it's that kind of mischaracterization that kind of causes um, pushback. Um, think, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, wasn't it the director general for the National Trust who used the term retain and, and explain? So it's sort of retain. It's not it's not about sort of chucking things away, mm. um, but sort of, you know, telling telling a, the wider story of, of, about a thing, a place, how we got there. Um, or once someone's done research and they've uncovered maybe diaries of people who lived at a certain time, telling their story. I'm not sure what's wrong with that. Hmm. And, and context is really important. And we've, we've mentioned uh, that some of your authors of the essays uh, are from kind of um, post-colonial instances or, or settler contexts without giving too much away, because we do want people to go and, and explore this on their own. Um, what are some of the, the main takeaways in terms of the geographical perspectives for you uh, from your essays? Um, well, to mention the Canadian case study, and a lot of work has been going on in Canadian university libraries uh, in relation to this. I think as Regina said, it was extremely thought provoking and interesting and librarians there, and the universities are working in the context of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of 2015, which is something particular to that, uh, to that environment. And that, that acknowledged the role of education in the suppression of Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing and being. Mm. So those librarians within their institutions are working to address the recommendations of that commission. Um, and because it's a settler context, the, the dialogue is less about decolonization and more about reconciliation and their roles are to do with indigenization. So it's a, it's a slightly different context, but it's extremely 
interesting to learn about uh, what what they're doing. Um, yeah, how they support Indigenous students, thinking about reintroducing elements of Indigenous knowledge into the curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, ways of researching and so on. So, yes, it, it's a whole slightly different um, agenda to, to the one that we have here. And the same is true with the, with the U.S., because in the U.S., the term decolonization isn't normally used. It's, a, it's about, you know, sort of social justice, racial justice in, in the U.S. And of course, you know, people will be aware of the Knowledge Justice book that was produced um, a, a year or so ago by um, academic librarians in the, in the U.S. So um, that in and of itself is a, is a very different context. And that author talks about, about a very specific time. And again, all of the things that you described earlier, Sarah, about what was happening in the United States and how she's helping her students to navigate that information and to think critically about um, how one assesses information there. Um, so I think that's a very, very interesting perspective. And that is one, again, that over time, it will be interesting to, to, to look back. I mean, in 2024, it's very possible that but, you know, we may see a resurgence of, of uh, Trumpism, you know, who knows? So mm -hmm. it'd be very interesting to see, you know, how that that um, evolves in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, some really interesting perspectives there. Um, sorry, Jess, did you have something? Else I was also having? just going to mention we had um, authors writing from Nairobi in mm -hmm. Kenya, which, again, was a kind of massive learning point for me. And, and it was extremely informative. So that's a, a post-colonial or possibly neo-colonial would be a better description. And they write about the challenges of decolonizing libraries and they share a study of the Macmillan Library, which is a public library in Nairobi, which was white only until independence. And then now it's now managed by an organization called the Book Bunk Trust um, to create contemporary libraries for, for Nairobi. Um, uh, they have different agendas, but face some very similar problems, but they're concerned with as they decolonize, what, what do they remember and what do they forget? What do they do with mm. uh, the literature of, of the past, of that colonial period? Yeah. How, do, how do they not... Uh, as they describe it, move on and forget. And yeah, how, sort of forget they, and move on, yeah. Yeah, how do they maintain, especially the voices of, of the radical past, how do, they, how do they maintain that? How do they not just turn a new leaf and start again? And they also talk about the impact of structural adjustment programmes um, on their sort of uh, education and library infrastructure, uh, and then the difficulty of curating their own digital collections and how you know Google Arts and Culture has stepped in to do that, which on one level is great, but they they question that yeah, they question the, the impact of economic restraint on being able to develop and manage their own. Mm, that's right. Who collection. yeah, so who retains again, yeah, who curates that information. Yeah, very interesting perspectives um, in that chapter. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, Regina, you had mentioned that um, you guys kind of are coming at this from a different perspective. Jess is a bit more theoretical, where you're very much more of like a practical application of this conversation. I'd like to give our readers just a few ideas of after having listened to this conversation about how they might go and start implementing some decolonization of the libraries on their own campuses. 
Well, I mean, one of I think the, a very practical chapter is is, is done by um, Bryony Birdie, who's um, a senior lecturer um, in in information sciences at Sheffield, and she, you know, I, I would I would say it's an excellent primer. It starts with having the conversations and considering the impacts, and then thinking about you know how you start to dismantle that. Um, and so she's got some really practical um, sort of recommendations there. So she's got some recommendations for some readings and some approaches that she's taken. So I think, so the easy thing is just, you know, start to have the conversation, you know, getting people to do some reading and to understand the impact, having conversations with the students, because at the end of the day, our core business, this is about supporting our students to success, um, having this, you know, conversations with them, understanding what their experiences are. Um, and then also having the conversations um, with the academic staff um, who will see challenges on how they deliver on, on, on this agenda. So yeah, um, yeah, mm. I, I recommend that, that chapter as a, a useful primer of where to start. Um, just, just based on the student perspective, Regina, because you've mentioned them a couple of times, what has been the student's response in your experience to efforts to decolonize the library? I mean, do they, do they get involved? Do they understand? Absolutely, which is why we opened the um, the book with um, a chapter by um, Hilary Gaibi Ababia, who mm-hmm. um, from the National Union of Students, who you know sort of talks about how how the um, the students were the 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 key impetus for you know pushing forward on this agenda. So very much sort of in, engaged, and from our own students, uh, again, they they are very vocal about you know what sort of resources they need. So they're, they're vocal from that perspective about the, what sort of resources they'd like to see, what sort of access they'd like to see. Um, we have conversations about having role models and we do work with students on how we can, you know, sort of connect our academic and professional services staff with the students so they can sort of see what they could be as it were. Um, so I, students are definitely engaged and, and often the key ones um, sort of leading in this agenda, I, I think. I mean, Jess, that's certainly the case Absolutely. as well for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I would also say, um, I mean, the, the book covers, in terms of case studies, it covers some of the areas where libraries do seem to be putting uh, quite a bit of their attention. A lot, a lot of that is around uh, supporting academic staff with reading lists. It's around um, analysing uh, collections, often using sort of data uh, techniques now. It's around looking at collection development policies. What do we collect in what language, uh, etc., and sharing those. Um, you know, take it to your learning and teaching committee, discuss it. Uh, at, at LSC, they, they did an equality impact assessment on their collection development policy, which I thought was a very interesting approach. Um, and as I said, trying to build this plurality of knowledge, um, metadata, classification and library subject headings, which have mm-hmm. become uh, out of date. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a kind of constant process that libraries are engaged in. But that's one of the biggest areas where decolonization in libraries uh, seems to be focusing. And again, there's kind of case studies uh, around that. But I would also say that if, if people wanted to get involved, as uh, Regina said, I think if you're going to use that term decolonization, you do need to kind of look at history. You do have to try to understand um, a bit about that. But as, as well as kind of published books by like this, there's lots of really, really good 
open information that's out there and I think introducing more of that open information into libraries is another thing that that libraries um, are doing and should do and I really noticed that now that I've retired I'm outside of academia I can't just you know pick up a, a journal article right so and, uh, and academic publishing is something you guys touch on as well in in the collection just in terms of which journals uh, libraries are subscribed to and in which they aren't and and if some of the smaller journals get even any sort of FaceTime with academic communities. Absolutely. I mean, that's the challenge of the big deals, which is what, you know, um, I think is spoken about in the LSE chapter in particular, uh, when we, we, we do need to reflect on what gets bundled in there and what gets left out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's another key area that we need to reflect. But there's so many, there's so many areas <laughs> that need to be touched on, but but again, and, and that's the other thing that I would like people to take away from this collection is that you will notice that um, institutions have chosen their battles. You're not going to be able to do everything because the minute you take that approach of, you know, let's try to do everything and make sure that it works perfectly before we we launch it, then you'll never you'll never do anything. You'll just it, it just leads to inertia. So I think what people may need to do when they're having those conversations and going back to Bryony's chapter about, you know, start with having the conversations and then deciding what is that key area that your institution wants to focus on and and, and start there. Mm. Um, you know, don't don't try to do everything because there's there are loads of things that need to be looked at. Mm. Yeah. I don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Absolutely. Exactly. And I would also agree with that. I think you need to connect and collaborate with other people in the institution. Mm. For example, when I was at UAL, there was the Decolonizing Arts Institute. There's always a a teaching and learning um, group who are very invested in this work with course leaders, work with the student union. So I think it's really a question of kind of, you know, joining up with those other people who are invested in in the same or similar agendas and seeing um, what can be done. And a lot, of, a lot of libraries are sharing their practice, uh, putting out online guides, sharing their practice, uh, pointing to open resources. And um, yeah, as Regina said earlier, libraries are very good at sharing their practice. So there is a lot that is very you know, easily findable, but it is, it is about the specificity of your own organization, your own library. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there isn't a kind of toolkit approach. I mean, we're very careful in, in the book that this isn't a toolkit. It's not a how-to. It's some um, sharing of experience. Just sharing practice, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the other key thing as well, um, so it needs to, to come sort of from the bottom up sideways and, and the top as well, because, you, you know, obviously having that sort of grassroots approach is good, but you do need to have leaders who hold the purse strings to be able to, you know, sort of put some budget aside to allow you to be able to progress that work. So mm-hmm. that is one of the key things that I, I tend to focus on with some of the work with, that I do with the professional society, such as SCONAL, um, where we try to focus on getting leaders to, to really buy into this because we do need the leaders to, to help to support this agenda. Mm. And sorry, what is SCONAL, Regina? Oh, so the Society of College, um, College, University and National Libraries. And I probably said it in the wrong order, but that's what it is. People can find it if they want to know more. Um, 
Jess and Regina, thank you so much for that fascinating conversation about this collection of essays. It sounds like it's it's very broad in, in its experiences that it's sharing with people and definitely a good starting point for um, the work. And I agree with you, Regina. It's going to be fascinating to see how this conversation develops into the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. That's it for today. Thanks again to Jess and Regina for joining us for this episode. And thank you for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions or questions about the podcast, do get in touch. It is sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.